Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now I've had the pleasure of knowing for about 10 years my guest for this show. Lionel Shriver is probably one of our most celebrated novelists. She is the author of such books as Big Brother and The Mandibles, A Family, and perhaps best known as the writer of We Need to Talk About Kevin, which was then made into a critically acclaimed film. But she's also a columnist for The Spectator and for The Wall Street Journal, and she's been increasingly appearing on our screens on political shows such as Question Time and Newsnight. Uh, she's with me now. Uh, thank you very much for coming in, uh, Lionel. Pleasure. We're recording this on uh, Friday the 29th of March. I know how I feel. Mm. Depressed. How do you feel? At least it's depressed. Right. Right. Uh, it's funny, uh, on the way here I went through Parliament Square and it, I'm kind of glad that we, you at least got me out of the house because right. it, was, it was quite a <laughs> spectacle. Um, and I gather from the Telegraph that uh, the uh, Leave people got there really early in the morning yes. to take over. Um, it's kind of touching, however pointless. You uh, wrote this week in The Spectator what I thought was an interesting sort of what you might call counterfactual. Mm -hmm. If the boot had been on the other foot, can you tell us what you were writing about? I was actually writing about a trio of different stories, but the, I think the one that you're zeroing in on yeah. uh, has to do, surprisingly, with Brexit. Yeah. And I was, it really struck me when there was that uh, enormous march um, to call for a second referendum and, you know, we want to remain in the EU uh, that was supposed to be a, a million strong. Mm. Uh, I don't... Uh, I don't know whether that's a correct measure or not. But it wasn't last time, so, you know. Yeah. But fine. Let's say it was a million people. Let's, let's just flip roles. What if uh, the ori original referendum had gone um, 50 to 48 for Remain? Mm. And uh, yes, we're staying in the EU. That question is settled. But uh, in this scenario, uh, perhaps freakishly, uh, three-quarters of Parliament is uh, full of Leave supporters. And uh, there's this enormous march of disgruntled, sore losers who come out for Leave anyway and insist that we must rerun the referendum, um, if, if not unilaterally withdraw in defiance of the electorate. Mm. Now how would that be covered? It would be frightening, mm -hmm. it would be labeled populist, mm -hmm. and all these people would be dismissed as thugs and hoodlums. Mm. Whereas the Remainers are portrayed as crusaders out to save their country. Mm. Do you think, I mean when you look at the situation now, would you have imagined it would have been so blatant, this, what has happened over the past two weeks? I mean, you know, it was going to be a battle. It was always mm -hmm. going to be a battle. But really, when you look and you, you look at this, this institution, which we're actually not that far from, Parliament, and for that matter, all the institutions around, such as the media, 
it has been quite extraordinary, hasn't it, the effort to essentially fight back and thwart the vote? I told my husband before the referendum, and I wish I'd gone on the public record on this, mm. if only to say I told you so, because that's so satisfying. <laughs> um, I said, you know, even if Leave wins, which of course nobody thought it would, and I didn't, they won't, they won't leave, you know? There'll be some kind of chicanery whereby um, we're not in the single market anymore, we're in the singular market. Mm. Or we're not in the customs union anymore, we're in the customary union. Mm. You know, it'll be mm. one big fiddle mm. and nothing really will change. Mm. And uh, I've been consistently right that that's, that's exactly what's happening. In fact, I would have more respect for Parliament right now if they simply marched in there and rescinded Article 50, honestly, and once and for all, and simply announced, I know that's, that you voted to leave the EU, but we've decided not to. Sorry. Mm. Because that's, that is what's happening. Mm. And one of the things that w w would happen right away, immediately after the referendum result, is that suddenly, we had this coinage of the so-called hard and soft Brexit. I remember you actually talking about it, because I wanted to actually ask you about it. it. It was the way in which the language was captured, yes. wasn't it? Yes, and the media picked it up right away. Yeah. As if it had been part of the argument all along. Yeah. So it's, it's important to bear in mind that uh, during the referendum campaigns, nobody was talking about a so-called soft Brexit, yeah, yeah. A, a medium course, a leaving the EU sort of but not really. Mm. Uh, the Remainers were all uh, catastrophizing about, you know, that means leaving the single market in the customs union, um, you'll be sorry, it's going to yeah. be an economic disaster. It, 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 so this new coinage actually was a brilliant piece of branding. It sort of came and we, we've never got beyond it. It sort of came out of nowhere, didn't it? Yes. Suddenly there was a soft and hard Brexit. Yes. But then that was followed by crashing out, for example. Right. Everyone which the media out. picked up too. Yes. But uh, which is language that betrays where they're coming from. Yes, exactly. Yes. You mentioned there uh, about pop populism. People would be accused of populism and all the rest of it. Um, I know you talked quite recently about definitions. Again, we're talking about language here. Mm. This has become an in or is treated an entirely negative thing, isn't it? being populist. Ostensibly. It's really an odd concept. I did a little uh, piece for Newsnight on populism and in order to write that little, you know, it's like a two-minute essay, I read and reread definitions of populism trying to digest what exactly it means. Mm. Uh, I think if you put a gun to most politicians' heads, they wouldn't be able to give you a cogent definition. Ultimately, the definition I came up with was it's democracy when you don't win. Right, okay. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a demonization of people who, who represent some ideology that you don't like. And occasionally uh, you have uh, left-wing populists, but increasingly 
um, you know, like in Spain and, mm. and in Greece. Mm. But for the most part, it has been a label that has been uh, used against uh, right of center. Well, in, in French culture, it is a, a completely negative term when, it, when it's even applied to artistic things, for example, pop populist. It's, it's like vulgar, it's like yes. bad. You know? Yes. And the odd thing about the term is that it's very anti-democratic. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it conjures this vision of the mob, yeah, yeah. you know, who, who unconstrained, has, has taken the reins of power and gone crazy. Um, well, then what is democracy? I mean, yeah, what, I don't get it. Yeah. The thing is, it, it strikes me now that one of the things we're facing is that people, not just this, the 17.4 million or whatever, or even maybe more than that now, that they now know, they've got no shadow of a doubt, they now know what the establishment think of them. Mm -hmm. they, they now, oh, they think we're racist, they think we are mm -hmm. uneducated. They might have sort of had a slight feeling that maybe that's how they were regarded, but now they, there's no doubt about it. What do you see? And by the way, you know, if you look at the demographics of who voted what, we're not talking about a bunch of skinheads. Yeah. We're talking about Middle England. Hmm. We're talking about people who make marmalade. Hmm. And yet, y the, the utter contempt in the rhetoric on the Remain camp has been consistent and almost hysterical. I, I find it horrifying. One of the things that I've followed in, in the New York Times is a really what, a bizarre line of, uh, of reasoning, of, of, a way of characterizing what's going on on the Leave side, which I don't think you could ever get away with publishing over here because it just wouldn't make any sense. Um, Such as what? What are they saying? The, the theory is that uh, the Leave vote is a hearkening back to the imperial past, right? It's trying to bring back the empire. And um, and it's all an, about an act of nostalgia. Now, does this ring true? Is that the rhetoric that we listen to on a daily basis? I mean, like you, I'm sure. I follow this every day. Yeah. I'm reading all these articles. Yeah. I'm reading all these uh, comment pieces. I don't, and I'm reading a lot of pro-leave comment pieces. I'm sorry, I don't see any reference to the empire. Exactly. There's yeah. there's no <laughs> imperial rhetoric. Mm. There's no um, in fact, there's no reference to the past. At best, I mean, I myself have referred to the past in that uh, I, don't, I don't find it especially bizarre to go back to being a country, mm. right? Because England has been a country for almost a thousand years. Uh, the union with England and Scotland goes back 300 years. We've only been a member of this supranational organization for 46 years. Why is that so strange? But that's, that. okay, fine, that's a kind of nostalgia, if you will, mm -hmm. you know, a hearkening back to the past. But it's also a hearkening to the present of an awful lot of countries that are still countries in the world today. So how does the New York Times manage to sell to the American readership this actually very prejudiced, uh, ugly, and ignorant version of events. And they love it, you know. And they get, they get, uh, they, they publish uh, 
just the kind of contemptuous yeah. uh, piece that you're talking about yeah, yeah. That, that probably wouldn't, wouldn't be published over here. It's extraordinary that they do that, actually, because even here, when, when one was arguing, campaigning, whatever, uh, that charge, you know, the kind of empire, imperialistic thing, used to come up very, very occasionally. It, it had no legs. No one was really mm. arguing on that place at all. What's interesting, though, is that when you look at those million people, who, however many it was, who went through London, aren't they the people who are demonstrating for the establishment, you know, for... Aren't they the conservative ones, if you like, if you want to put it in inverted commas? Yes, absolutely. And there is, there is an element here that I don't entirely understand. That is, given we're talking about only those 46 years, why is membership of the European Union so emotionally important to these people? I, mm. I can see... Yeah, yeah getting a little stroppy about being controlled by a large bureaucratic autocracy. Mm -hmm. that, that to me logically stimulates annoyance if not anger. Mm. But I don't understand why membership of, an or, of a, a, a large bureaucratic autocracy why is why is that so meaningful to these people individually? I mean, I can I can see, okay, some younger people want the opportunity to work in, work in Europe without having to get a work visa. I mean, that's a, a practical uh, access that I'm actually pretty sympathetic with. Yeah. They won't all necessarily take advantage of it. In fact, most of them won't. But I can understand that feeling of of opportunity is enjoyable and. Um, that's the one point on which I'm most sympathetic with, with Remainers. Mm. But that doesn't seem to be where the emotion is primarily coming mm. from. It is an identity thing. And I don't understand identifying so fiercely with this behemoth. I, I just don't get it. Can you explain it to me? Well, no, it is an interesting thing. Is, you know, in the part, in the sort of 70s, if you like, 70s, 80s, 90s, when people talked about Europe, and they argued and debated, People who were pro-EU, I think as you just said, they kind of, their attitude was, well, look, you know, it's got a bit of a democratic deficit, it's hugely bureaucratic and everything, but on balance, you know, we think it's all right to be in. And you could kind of argue with that. But what this has shown, this the campaign and what's happened since, is that, as you say, there is this absolute kind of uncritical allegiance. Yes. They walk around, you know, with the things on their, on their faces, you know, the insignia and all the rest yeah. of it. All I can think, you ask about explaining, I just suggest maybe one thing. Is it maybe that it's all about how I see myself? I'm a citizen of the world. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Is that, could that be it? They're wrong. That's of course, some of it, but somehow the emotion, the best I can identify the emotion is we're used to getting our way. How dare you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's actually much more what it is. Right. Because it's one of the great orthodoxies of the past 40, 50 years. Suddenly, someone has put their foot down and said, actually, no, too far. We don't want this anymore. And they don't know how to handle it. Uh, I don't say the creative or art artistic community, <laughs> but if you think of the literary one. Out of which maybe I have been booted. Yeah, <laughs> quite. No, no. The point is apparently, uh, Lionel, it's something like 90% of people mm -hmm. are Remainers. Uh, 
Is that something you recognize or is that an exaggeration? Oh, sure. I mean, I am a freak among my coterie. Mm. And uh, friends of mine have different responses to that. Uh, there might be a few people who are more prone to avoid me than they would have been. There are other friends of mine who are willing to overlook it. Uh, uh, the rare friend has engaged in constructive conversation of a sort that, that hardly anyone has because yeah, yeah. we surround ourselves with people we, we agree with. Uh, and most Remainers, especially, are used to being around other Remainers. So uh, in some ways I'm regarded as some kind of uh, exotic zoo creature. But you see, isn't this extraordinary? You know, I'm sure that many people in that world would see themselves as being original thinkers, yes. as being free thinkers, whatever yes. it is, you know. What's going on then? I'm mystified. I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't understand why I could come to the conclusion that on balance I think the UK might do better outside the EU. I thought it was at least a worthy experiment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think it's that I'm American. I mean, I've been here for over 30 years. You still it, spend some time in the States, don't you? Sure, ever I do. Yeah. Uh, I, sp I spend the, the summer in New York. But I've gone too native in many regards uh, for that to be the explanation. I, there's just this group thing. And it, it, it's disappointing, it's especially in the, um, in the arts. Where you, yeah, it, yeah. And I would say especially... Uh, amongst writers who are supposed to have a, more of an intellectual bent, uh, whereas, you know, if you paint pictures, maybe you don't care. I can see that. Well, no, but I mean, whether you're painting pictures or writing it's plays or novels, it's not just the EU, actually. I would say sort of like, when did you last see anything, for example, that criticized multiculturalism? When would you ever see a play which, for example, seriously questioned mass migration? It's it just doesn't happen. I mean, you know what you're going to get, don't you? Yes, and we're talking about something larger than Brexit now yeah. because it's going on all over the West. Uh, the arts and media ha have adopted a both consistent and extremely narrow set of views. And then at the same time, however bizarrely, you've got Trump in the White House mm. and... Uh, and leave, at least ostensibly, triumphs over here. So there's this strange disconnect between uh, the artistic and journalistic elite mm. and the rest of the country. Um, and if anything, uh, the more uh, the, the animals, the populists, <laughs> uh, succeed in getting real political power, the more extreme and uh, uncompromising the artistic and journalistic community becomes. I mean, the, they drive each other apart. Where do you stand, where would you put yourself politically, actually? I think I've heard you describe yourself as a libertarian. I, ha I have to say, I don't quite even know what that means anymore because it seems to have so many definitions. How would you define libertarian, if, that, uh, if that's what you think? I've resort, resorted to that label just because I don't know what else to call myself. It's a somewhat dangerous label to court, especially in the United States, because libertarians are considered complete kooks. 
of the irony of that being that uh, the principle, the core principle of libertarianism is just that you, uh, you should be able to do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting other people. Yeah. And that is, as far as I can tell, the core principle of the American Constitution. Yes, yes. How does that... So and we've lost, of course, you know, the left has, has completely abandoned any such notion because it has become uh, oriented toward control. Yeah. So it, it doesn't have to do with letting people do whatever you, you, they want. Uh, they they must behave in this way, and not and and the left is not content even to t tell you what to do, but you also have to think in this way. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's very dictatorial, and the the views that you are are uh, are allowed are very rigid. Right. And you know, part part of my problem with that is, look, I was a rebellious teenager, and I still am. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't like being told what to do. Uh. I'm inclined to do whatever you tell me not to, just because that's my nature. I don't, I don't like being controlled. I don't understand why other people do. Um, <laughs> just, there's a lot I don't understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so when I'm dictated to, my, my impulse is to question, at, le at, at the very least to question. And I do find it mysterious why young people are so consistently uh, indoctrinated into this way of thinking. Is I know that uh, I'm a kind of late child of the 60s, so that may be part of it, but I don't understand what happened to the kind of wild and crazy rebelliousness of of the state of being young, yes, and yeah, uh, yeah. this whole thing of getting into lockstep with uh, this rigid ideology is completely antithetical to me uh, in relation to being young and alive. And mm. you know, it used to be that you you questioned your elders and. Mm. Uh, you wanted to overthrow the way things are done and do something differently, and I, I see it. I see it occasionally. I, I do meet occasional uh, younger people who give me enormous hope. Uh, Spiked online, I think, mm. has some great people mm. in it, and I, given the current environment, I have uh, doubly much admiration for them because I think it it, it has become very difficult to have a dissenting voice in universities or or even now because people who are have been through the the universities that are now in workplaces there are a lot of workplaces where you know there's only one way to think so if you depart from that you can endanger your career i think it's it's in, it's gone across the something that you might have thought was the in the public sector only is now in the, in the private sector. In there was a resources. spectator column about that recently. That's right, yes, about the, human resource departments. Yes. And, the, and what they see as being their, um, their reason, their motive, but also in bringing in these various courses that staff have to do, unconscious mm -hmm. bias courses, what have you. Before which, we, we, which they've documented make people more racist than they were <laughs> when they went in, <laughs> right. if only because they resent <laughs> wasting their time. Yeah. If you, if you, 
how much of these, if you call yourself a, think of yourself as being libertarian for the reasons you've just said, this must inform what you write about maybe, or what you choose to write about when you write your novels. I, I was looking through interviews with you and um, one interviewer said that you, your writing is characterized by a sympathy for the overdog. <laughs> I thought it was a good line, I have uh -huh, to say. Uh -huh. But is, this, is that something that you actually recognize? I mean, a little bit. Uh, yeah. I sympathize with anybody that other people don't sympathize with. Right. And that's my instinct. Yeah. Um, so when I was writing uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin, I looked at the characters in this scenario, the school shooting scenario, although that book doesn't actually have a school shooting in it. Who, who doesn't get any sympathy? Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the, actually, you know, I was about to say obviously the shooter, but that's not true. The shooter does generally get some sympathy. Yeah. That is, there's been this pouring over uh, the, the, the history of uh, these uh, kids and looking for signs of bullying and, you know, uh, what's gone wrong in their family. Um, are they, have they been warped by video games or, you know, there have been all kinds of explanations made for them as to how, how this happened. I thought the, the parents of the killers, those people get no sympathy. Yeah. It's their fault. Yeah, yeah. They should have been better parents. They should have known what was going on with their own kids. Um, and they are in some ways de facto murderers. And of the two parents, which one really gets it in the neck? The mother. Yeah. Okay, so I wrote, we need to talk about Kevin from the perspective of the mother of the killer. Mm -hmm. And obviously because I have embraced that, that viewpoint, I experience sympathy with, yes. with that yes. person. Yeah. Um, so, for example, I have some sympathy with people who have been very successful in their careers and finally started making a decent living only to discover that they get taxed within an inch of their lives. Mm -hmm. Now, you're not supposed to sympathize with people who make any money, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's emotionally a pretty grim experience. In fact, I did a, I did a paper for, I think it was New Criterion in mm -hmm. New York, all, right, okay. all yeah. about uh, what it feels like to lose, lose all of your income <laughs> yes. to the state. And one of the things that the state doesn't take seriously when, when it removes the proceeds of your labor is what it feels like. Yeah. That, that there, especially once you ever cross, approach or cross the 50% point. Yeah. You just wonder what, what is the point? Why, did, why am I working for other people? Mm. And you feel had. Yeah. Okay, you feel as if somebody has tricked you. Mm. You feel taken advantage of. It's almost like being mugged. Mm. And one of the main things that motivates people to figure out somehow to pay a somewhat lower level of tax is because they don't like what it feels like mm. to be fleeced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And the experience is not of, oh, the great opportunity to make a contribution to the larger social welfare. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Mm. When, especially when other people 
are, are, are donating, if you will, a much smaller percentage. So, you know, that's another example of, that's a constituency that almost no one goes to bat for. It, if you have any money, then nobody sympathizes with you. N- nobody wants to hear about your whinging about your high tax rate. And for the most part, people do keep their mouths shut. You, you don't, you don't see people uh, publishing uh, comment pieces or going on TV or you know, the wealthy. The wealthy are are very subdued on this point. You certainly don't hear writers talking about it. No, no, no. That's for sure, almost none. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to break there. We're going to go on and talk, uh, Lionel, thank you very much, but a a bit more about identity politics and some of the uh, things you found yourself in. But Mm -hmm. for for this uh, program, um, thank you very much, Lionel, and uh, she'll be back with me next time. Thank you very much. Bye.